0: Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. And in this particular podcast from the Royal College, we're discussing a paper published in the September issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry. And the title of the paper is Insight, Psychopathology and Global Functioning in Schizophrenia in Urban Malawi. And I'm joined down the line by one of the co-authors, Niall Cromlish, uh, Niall, um, you're the lead author on this paper, and at the time you wrote the paper, you were based out in Malawi. But where are you based now?
1: I'm based um, since July. I'm based back in St James's Hospital in Dublin and uh, Trinity College, Dublin. Doing I just started my senior training.
0: So this paper was um, the research on which it's based was written um, from some data that you gathered while you were out in Malawi. How did you come to be in Malawi at the time?
1: Well. Um, I was in Malawi for eighteen months, actually, from January two thousand and six to two thousand and seven. But even before that, again, my previous post was as a research fellow with Professor Averdell who's his co-author on this paper, and um, that was in Dublin. And uh, because the the service that I worked in was uh, St John of God um, Hospital in Dublin, and uh, the service in Malawi at St. John of God. In Malawi, there's close links between the two ever since St. John of God and Mizuzu was set up 15 years ago. So it just so happened that we designed a study while I was a research fellow, uh, which, in, which uh, was based in Mizuzu. So I, I went over in March of 2005 and set about the process of really getting a protocol together and hiring Prince and Anthony, who are two of my co-authors who've done immense work on this. Um, uh, and that's how I came to be in Mizuzu in the first place.
0: Tell us a bit about malawi because it's not a country you hear a huge amount of i'm not actually entirely clear where it is
1: no um it's it's a country that when you lived there in 2006 um all you get asked is did you meet madonna and um, that's like the only question that anyone really asked about malawi it's a it's a small kind of sliver of a country in well it's it's south, southern and central Africa, really. It's sort of in from Mozambique. It's not coastal. It's um, If you go to Kenya, where most people will probably know where Kenya is, go south of Kenya, you're in Tanzania, and south again, you're in Malawi. So it sort of borders on Mozambique and, and Zambia and a bit of Tanzania. It's a small country. We were in the northern region, which is the least populated region. It's where Mizuzu is. Mizuzu is the capital of the north, really. Um, and it's in Mizuzu that... One of the only two mental health services in Malawi is, and that's the St John of God service where where we worked.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the population of Malawi and in what way it might be similar to or different from other African countries?
1: The key thing, I suppose, about the population of Malawi in the last few years is that it's uh, very big. You know, and we're we're next to Zambia. I say we, and Malawi is next to Zambia, and Zambia is maybe in land terms maybe ten times the size of Malawi, which is a, quite a small country i haven 't really um, it's about a little bit bigger probably than the size of the Republic of Ireland, probably probably a little bit or or maybe the island of Ireland, but it's really quite small and it's got about twelve million people in it um which is very big and and growing now in uh, in terms of how is it different or the same from other countries well it's you know largely uh, uh, there, there's really three uh, regions and two two main kind of languages, a, a few different tribes. It's ethnically relatively diverse, um, but but has, has been peaceful. Um, where we were in the north is a, is the Tumbuka speaking region, and there's references to the Tumbuka language in the paper. And um, the Tumbuka are a tribe that has lived there that moved up from South Africa many hundreds of years ago and live also in Zambia. Um, so the, that's the, the tribe where we were. The main language in the rest of the country, and we were in the northern region. There's the central and southern region as well. And in the central and southern region, the main language is Chichewa, and that's also the uh, well, that's also the official language along with English. You know, Malawi was a protectorate of uh, Britain until 1964.
0: Could you tell us something about the the health? situation of the population, what kind of health problems do they face, and a little bit about the health service, what kind of medical help can the population get?
1: Yeah, the, the health um, situation is, is um, generally bad. I, I, was, I won't go into mental health yet, we'll, we'll maybe talk about that in a minute, but in terms of the main problems that are facing Malawians, uh, HIV is obviously, yes, you know, but, but it, 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 that's, it's the main problem. Um, you know, things like nutritional disease obviously is, is a major uh, problem. There hasn't been a full-scale famine in Malawi for some years. There's been a few what Malawians would call hungers, which is when there's a shortage of food and people go hungry and don't eat very often, but not that many people die. And there's been a few of them in the last few years. The most recent one of those was probably in the end of 2005. Um, HIV is r- rampant um, and is hugely studied. There's, a, there's a really some some great HIV work going on in Malawi partly because you know of uh, the, the high prevalence about 14% of 15 to 49 year olds are said to be HIV positive and that's probably an underestimate so HIV affects everything you know it affects everything else it affects in in ways that we don't really know it affects uh, mental health we, we know about how mental health uh, and HIV interact in some ways but we don't know that much about it in Malawi specifically and really in a lot of Sub-Saharan Africa Um. So that's really, I mean, that's the the number one problem. Um, There's problems that are related to that, like TB. Obviously, malaria is a big problem for the children in particular. And again, some of the best malaria research um, uh, that's being done is coming out of uh, Malawi.
0: What about mental health? Can you describe what the mental health situation of the population is?
1: I I can describe what the mental health services are like. Um, uh, One of the key questions is, and is is this true for all of really sub-Saharan Africa and probably a lot of the developing world is that we don't know a whole lot about the mental health situation of the population because the kind of studies that you need to do to assess that haven't been done, possibly with the exception of Nigeria, which conducted a really, really fantastic uh, census of uh, mental health um which was published, I think, in the British Journal a couple of years ago. Um, Oye Koriche is the author of that. But those kind of census, population-based studies of mental health, um, just haven't been done in really anywhere else in Africa. So we don't quite know. Um, we uh, in in our there's two services really. Um, there's there's nominally a third mental health service in the central region, but really the two functioning mental health services are. The service in Mzuzu, where uh, where I worked, and the service in the South, where Félix Collier, who's the Chief Government Psychiatrist, works. While I was there, there were two psychiatrists in the country, including me, um, and that's for a population of 12 million, and that meant none in the Central Region. Um, previous to just my arriving, there had been a sec- another psychiatrist called Rob Stewart, who um, is an SR in the UK, and he had been in the South. So really you know in terms of medical input into psychiatric services it's almost there's almost none the service services such as they are uh, you know the, the service in the north is reasonably well staffed actually um it's staffed by mostly clinical officers and nurses and nurses are nurses as they are here and there are actually some of them now we're beginning to train them in psychiatric uh you know as psychiatric nurses clinical officers are people who are medically trained up to a point. They they have a diploma in clinical medicine and these are usually men and they're usually really good all-rounders. You know, these are men who, you don't have to be a man, but all my, the clinical officers I've met have been male and they're trained in medicine, in surgery and obstetrics and uh, pediatrics and sometimes in psychiatry. And we have four or five of those in Mizuzu in, on our staff. There's almost, well, there's maybe two or three psychiatric clinical officers elsewhere in the country, and the rest of it is delivered by the rest of the care is delivered by nurses and um, who are who may or may not be trained in, in mental health. Um, in terms of the kind of interventions you can you can deliver, you know, uh, it's it's kind of limited. Um, we in in the service that I worked in, most of who we we saw were people with psychosis really, and I guess and I don't know because we haven't studied it. I guess that the reason you would mostly see people with psychosis is because they were the people who were most behaviourally disturbed. We didn't see that many people with depression. We didn't see see very many people with apparent negative symptoms, because I think they would mostly be managed in the community and that would not be regarded as sufficient reason to bring them maybe a day's travel to hospital. So people that we saw often were manic and often were psychotic. we had limited ways of dealing with that we had we had no uh, there's there's essentially no atypical antipsychotics there's essentially no newer antidepressants there are some uh ultracyclics there are some uh, clopromazine is almost the only antipsychotic that's available in much of the country and we had access to some others in zuzu but uh what we what we're trying to do in zuzu um, and hopefully then elsewhere is to use non pharmacological methods you know or or to at least develop the capacity for non pharmacological methods and need psychosocial methods because you know it's unlikely that it's going to be possible that the malawian government is going to fund excellence like pharmacology or even that we'd be able to use it you know we don't we didn't use lithium because we wouldn't have the infrastructure the lab infrastructure to to be able to uh, monitor it but one of the great strengths of malawian society is the community bonds and the family bonds that are there and so really in the study that we're doing, which is a trial of care education in Malawi, of which this paper is a baseline analysis, um, what we were trying to do was harness some of that, you know, use the strength of the family in order to keep people well and to keep families well also. <laughs>
0: I just want to go back to something you said about the number of psychiatrists. So this is a country of roughly 12 million people. And when you were there, if I heard you correctly, you're telling me there were just two psychiatrists, including yourself.
1: As of now, I you know, I left. So as of now, there's one psychiatrist, and that's, that's Felix Kouye.
0: Are, are you being absolutely serious that there's only one psychiatrist for 12 million people? That No, no other junior doctors maybe in the pipeline as trainee psychiatrists?
1: There's one in the pipeline, and he's in Dublin. Um... And I met him last week. <laughs> uh, I was out with him last week, and he's he's here. So he's he's planning to go back. Um, you know, but that's that's years away. But Felix is there by himself, and you can imagine if you're one psychiatrist for 12 million people, the amount of clinical work you actually do is, you know, he he he's a chief government psychiatrist. He does a lot of work in planning of services and that kind of stuff, and he writes reports and so on. You know, he's uh, but he's by himself. He's he's a I you know he's an amazing guy. <laughs>
0: is there are there hospitals then which have which have psychiatric beds
1: yeah there are devoted psychiatric hospitals there there are three there's um that in there's in the north there's the St John of God hospital and we had who 35 something like that beds uh some, something around 35 to 40 beds and that was essentially for a catchment of about a million um which is the northern region the northern region is the the most sparsely populated of the three um so we had about 40 beds for that number of people um Mazusa Catchment itself was about a hundred thousand, but we, we, you know, with our remit to cover the whole of the north, and in fact we would often admit people from elsewhere, and people have been admitted from other neighbouring countries because Saint John of God is known to have a pretty good service. Um, in the central region, there is a hospital in Lilongwe, which is the capital of Malawi, but that hospital is uh, really understaffed, and you would not never advise anyone to to really go there um it's it's not a great service and there's no psychiatrist there and hasn't been um and in the south there is zomba now zomba is the old kind of institutional hospital that's been there for many years and i I never visited i must admit um but it's been there for a long time it's kind of the equivalent of the old asylums that would have been in ireland and i guess the uk and it's a huge place and it's being reformed now it's got a bad name it's, it's a dedicated psychiatric hospital but people will talk about going to Zamba and and like the old asylums in the same way maybe people would end up in, in Zamba and wouldn't you know possibly spend an awful lot of time there and the amount of treatment or the actual intervention or rehabilitation that's available there would be limited and I think that is changing now Felix has only been around Felix Kouye the psychiatrist has only been around in back in Malawi having completed his training for a few years and I think he's trying to reform that and improve the standard of care there you know but so so the three psychiatric hospitals and apart from that people would get admitted to well a couple of places i suppose sometimes you'd find people in in general hospitals there there're district hospitals in most of the major towns um and often people who have uh, sort of less acute psychiatric problems and by that i mean psychiatric problems that are less characterized by behavioral disturbance um i mean that those people might go to traditional medicine. You know, traditional medicine is really still a force, uh, a huge force in Malawi. It's the first port of call for most people with most disorders.
0: Coming back just to these three psychiatric hospitals then, you've got the one psychiatrist. So who's who's looking after the patients when they get admitted to the other two hospitals, assuming there's one where the psychiatrist is based?
1: Well, in, in uh, yeah, the, well, the one psychiatrist is based in, in, in the south, in Zamba. And so when those patients are in, he, he's got responsibility for them. And now I'm not, you'd have to ask him because I'm not 100% sure how much time he spends doing clinical work there because he's such a busy guy and he's trying to develop services elsewhere. So there, if he's not there delivering you know, patient care, then the person delivering the patient care there, the people is uh, the clinical officer or officers. That are there at the time and the nurses. Clinical officers are essentially usually like registrars and they can be quite senior registrars in that they've been working for a long time, they've got a lot of experience. Their level of training and so on would, would not be as good. Um, uh, in Bottom Hospital, in the long way, um, the care there is it, largely delivered by, by nurses. Um, there may or may not be a clinical officer there, I'm not sure. But it's certainly not well staffed with clinical officers. And in Mzuzu, where I worked, um, we have a clinical director, and his name is Harris Chilali, and he's the senior author on our paper. And he is—he's uh, a clinical officer by training, so he's very experienced. He's been around 20 years or so in the service, or well, 15 since it opened. And he trained in psychiatry in Dublin with Avert, uh, about 10, 15 years ago. Um, so he, so he, and the other clinical officers there's four or. There's four clinical officers plus the research clinical officer and there's a few nurses. Again, we're not overstaffed with nurses, but we're not as badly uh staffed as, as other services. And so we would have the capacity, for example, in Zuzu, to have clinical officers working clinically and to have a research clinical officer which is a real luxury and um to have a research nurse which is Anthony Cephas and to have, you know, community nurses and things like that. So we can actually deliver a community service rather than it be hospital based. Um, so those are, you know, but the one psychiatrist in the country who's there now is probably not really involved in clinical care all that much.
0: Now let's talk about the actual paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry. That's a very useful summary of the background, the context in which this paper was written. Um, the, the, the subtitle of the paper in the journal is Schizophrenia in Malawi. Why did you pick? As it were that that particular diagnosis to focus on, and what were you attempting to do with this study?
1: why did we pick um well, um, what were we attempting to do why did? let me start with why why did we pick schizophrenia? We picked schizophrenia because it's uh in in the opinion I think of our former Malawi and colleagues uh, and certainly uh, this is before I went there, and certainly I would concur with them now it was just psychosis is most of what we would see um we w- w- we would we would also aim i suppose to uh to look at bipolar disorder, but the number of people with bipolar disorder is actually slightly fewer than the number of people with psychosis and schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is by far in a way the diagnosis that we would see most in Mizuzu, and I guess that's and 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 also is you know disabling in the same way that it is um in Ireland or the UK, and so like psych- schizophrenia was probably picked for that reason. And um, what we were trying to do with this paper, well, I should just give a bit of context. And um, the the paper is uh, a, a baseline analysis of of a trial. So, um, what we are the the idea of the trial and the trial is still is going on. is It's a carer education trial. So we wanted to, like I was talking about, to try and harness you know um, family support and social supports. And to see if educating families about uh, schizophrenia would be in any way helpful to them, to the families themselves, and also helpful to uh, clearly the patients. You know, but at the baseline analysis, we wanted to look at um, well, we wanted to look at the influence of insight, and this is for for a couple of reasons. One is that it's just an area that we, as a research group in in Dublin, um, have been very interested in. de O'Carolan has published quite a lot on this, but the other thing is. That we were it's a care of education study and we were sort of interested at baseline and seeing what might be the kind of parameters we want to look at the kind of things that might change if if you educated people so this is a baseline study so we haven't in this paper intervened at all but we thought we thought about what might be the kind of thing that would change for a patient um if we were to educate the family and we thought of insight and um, that that might be something that you'd look at and so we wanted to look at the baseline of affect relationship of insight to two other important outcomes at presentation. And that was really functioning with our, with our major outcome. We looked at psychopathology as well because insight and psychopathology are so inextricable that you couldn't really look at one without the other. And that was the purpose of it, to see was insight important um, independently in determining functioning uh, among patients with schizophrenia.
0: There's a very useful and succinct summary of the kind of typical view within Malawi, of what serious mental illness, um, like schizophrenia, might be accounted for in terms of um, indigenous beliefs. Could you say a bit about that? What, what would be the view of the ordinary person in Malawi um, that, that, that would explain why someone heard voices, for example?
1: Most common explanation, the traditional explanation, for, for not just mental illness, but most types of illness, um, and even just misfortune, is uh, bewitchment. That's no, that's that's one thing. Um, so that if a person becomes uh, mentally ill, if a person begins to experience uh, voices, for example, then it is often it, there are two main attributions that people will put on that, and one is that it's um, it's actually a person casting a spell on them and and uh, intending to do them harm. Um, or that the person has done them harm by inflicting this illness on them. And, this, and the second, uh, in terms of hearing hallucinations, in terms of hearing voices, the second attribution, and this can be a positive or a negative thing. It's not always perceived as negatively, is what's um, is is the the voice of uh, of ancestors or something like that. Um, there's there's a word in Tumbuka, uloi, which describes this, describes bewitchment. Um, it's a very you know, it's it's something that we're hoping to look into a bit more as we go on with the study, and we've looked into it a little bit here, but um, what is interesting about it, I think, mm-hmm. among many things, is that if you believe, let's say, that your illness is caused by bewitchment, or if somebody else does, then that actually... you There's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's um, there's another word called... Uh, I can't pronounce this correctly, but it's called wakafunta and it's it's a Tumbuka word and it's what it conveys is that you're uh mentally ill and that you've been bewitched and that there's very little hope for you. Because there's very little you can do about it except hope that the person who bewitched you uh, you know, takes it away. And so it's an interesting area, I think, when you're looking at at uh, caregivers and the role of caregivers in recovery, and the role of yourself in your own recovery. Because if you really feel that you're quite powerless because someone has bewitched you, well, you can imagine how that sort of really, uh, you know, really disempowers you. Um, so that's that's an interesting area of Timbuktu culture, and it's very very widespread. You know, um, the idea of bewitchment, is, uh, bewitchment as bewitchment as being a real thing and and really responsible for for illness um, is, is so prevalent. I mean, among educated people and among rural people and urban people, and it's just it's everywhere. Um, it's a very, very, very common thing.
0: I'm just wondering if there's a further negative aspect to this, which is not just that it leads to a kind of what, what psychologists might refer to as learned helplessness. There's not much you can do about it. But whether there's a negative stigmatising aspect to it, which is that if someone's bewitched you, then you've done something bad to cause the bewitchment, if you see what I mean. I do, I mean. yeah. That there's a... Is there an aspect of the culture which suggests that as well?
1: I don't think so. No. I'm, I mean, again, like this is something that that uh, is based on just lots of conversations with people rather than systematic research. But if you're bewitched, you're you're not you're not at bl- at fault for that. Actually, is the attitude that I think is most people would have. So if you are uh, if you're bewitched by somebody, it's 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 they've done this, and they might do this. There's a very common thing in in Malawi, for example. And this, this is in this is in the national anthem. There's a, in the national anthem. There's a, a plea for God to protect uh, Malawians from jealousy. It's considered by Malawians to be a, a major Malawian trait. So that if you achieve well, other people will be jealous and they will try and do you down. And this is also pretty common in Ireland. You know, we 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 know this. It's called begrudgery in Ireland, but um, in Malawi, it's considered quite a quite a big thing. In in Ireland, it's called begrudgery. Yeah, it's just like if you do well, someone will just try and bring you down because you know that's just what we're like. So in um, in Malawi, it's jealousy. So that if you do if you do well, if you succeed, that um, someone will will try and stop you succeeding, or will be jealous and will will try and do bad things. And and among those things is bewitchment. So an explanation sometimes for someone becoming mentally ill is, oh, I was doing well, and so my neighbour was not happy, and so my neighbour bewitched me. And I've I've heard this, you know, and. Um, So there isn't that sense. I mean, mental illness, don't get me wrong, mental illness is is stigmatized, but not in that way, not in that that you have somehow deserved to be bewitched. People feel very resentful of being bewitched, and their families are very resentful if they feel that someone's being bewitched. They don't feel personally responsible. That's probably a generalization, but I think generally that's true.
0: But does the belief system have certain repercussions in terms of the way the mentally ill or the or the bewitched are treated by the population at large. Th- does that belief system mean that that person who's believed to be bewitched gets shunned by the population or are people sympathetic because of this thing that's happened to them yeah. uh, as, as a result of n- n- as no result of them doing anything wrong themselves? Yeah. What's the, what, how, what, how does it translate into public attitudes to mental illness?
1: You know, my own experience or our experience in Malawi is Less that it it results in you being shunned, than it just results in you getting kind of the wrong care because the, the, you know, or no care. And uh, that if it's believed to be a spiritual thing or a supernatural thing, then, you know, those are the people who are called in to try and help you. The only way apart from, you know, if you're bewitched by somebody who's a powerful witch, then the only way of being uh, relieved of that is either that the the person who so supposedly bewitched you just takes the bewitchment away or that you may be able to go to someone who's perceived to be a very very powerful traditional healer or a singanga is the word that I used in the paper, and that they may be able to reverse uh the bewitchment or overcome the magic of the other person so I think it's less that you're i wouldn't be able to say too much about about being people being shunned in a malawian context but um but it's it's more that you just end up in the wrong in the wrong place, and and I, through personal experience, you know, I've met I've met people who had very obvious, in retrospect, you know, psychotic symptoms for maybe twenty years, and and went to traditional healers five, six, seven, eight times as often as they could afford to, because you need to pay roughly a cow or a goat to go, and uh, and symptoms were persistent for many 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 years because they just perceive them as spiritual symptoms that I traditionally look at help them with I think the Nigerian uh, work on this is really good and uh, they found that in and there's been work from other from other areas in Africa I think like in Ghana where they found that um stigma was associated with those kind of beliefs uh, like that, that this is a supernatural not a medical problem um the work in, in Nigeria um found and this is a study of excuse me it's a the study of community attitudes towards um, mental illness in a big study um, published again in the BJP um, uh, that found that out of about 10 mooted causes of mental illness, including is this drug abuse, including is it caused by medical causes or, or is it bewitchment or is it punishment from God, found that you know bewitchment and punishment from God were way, way up the list and that they were associated with more stigmatizing attitudes and more, more social distancing from um, from people who had mental illness. Now, you don't want to extrapolate too much from Nigeria to Malawi, but you could possibly extrapolate a little. Um, this is something that we're going to be looking at actually next, when, when we do our follow-up, post-intervention follow-up, we have introduced the same measure that they use in Nigeria looking at, at beliefs about mental illness. So I hope to be able to talk more definitively about this in the future.
0: So let's now talk about um the method you employed in in doing this study so what 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 did that involve?
1: Well it involved an assessment of sixty uh patients who agreed to take part in the uh study uh, which which was the trial um so these these were sixty of the baseline assessments um at uh which which took place last year from the end really of two thousand and five through to sort of the middle of two thousand and six um and uh, so we were, we were looking at psychopathology, we were looking obviously at diagnosis, and we were looking at insight and functioning. So we assessed people using the usual standardised instruments which we had translated uh, into Timbuka. Um, so we used the SCID, we used the uh, GAF, which is the Global Assessment of Functioning, which is part of the skid and gives you a really nice sort of, well, it gives you a number between 0 and 100 to measure someone's Functioning, which is actually sounds a bit blunt, but it actually is quite a good instrument. Um, We used the Schedule for Assessment of Insight, which is Anthony David's um, instrument, which gives you three dimensions of insight. And we, we, you know, as an insight researcher, and uh, I I find this really, really useful. Um, It gives you three dimensions because more and more, you know, people are not thinking of insight as being it's there or not. You still see it written down as being partial, absent, or whatever. But really, it's more complex than that, and the SAI is not too complex, but it, it gives you three components, which is um, recognition of illness, that is, does the person kind of regard themselves as being mentally ill or not? That's one. Another is um, treatment adherence, which is just does the person either passively or passively accept treatment or kind of actively seek it, like is the person treatment seeking, and the combination of those adds up to treatment adherence. And the third is recognition of symptoms, and that's an interesting one, and that's more particularly with psychosis, what that really means is that when, when a person who's psychotic experiences delusions or hallucinations, and really that's what we define it as, if a person is experiencing delusion or a hallucination, does the person recognise these as being pathological? Does the person know there's something wrong? Even if they don't think of it in terms of being mentally ill, does they sort of recognise this is wrong, this is something I should do something about? And uh, that, that's how we measured, um, how we measured insight. Um, and... Yeah, that so there, that's really it. So we, we measured that and then we, we just looked, but we were interested in whether um, Insight had any relationship with functioning independent of its relationship with psychopathology. Clearly psychopathology, positive and negative symptoms have, have a very strong relationship with functioning. If you've got a lot of positive or particularly negative symptoms, it's going to be very difficult for you to score well on a functioning scale or to be well-functioning. We were interested just in, in whether Insight itself had any relationship with that. Um, I... Yeah, I, particularly I should I should say I mean I, I'm, of course I'm talking now that the paper is published but what I was interested in too was the idea of the power that uh, symptoms have you know that that part of the power that a symptom has is possibly the symptom itself and part of its capacity to to make you. Um, to interrupt, you know, your daily life and your social functioning and so on. Part of that is possibly the symptom, but part of it might be the belief that you have about the symptom. You know, if you you understand that a symptom comes from an illness that you sort of know about, then it may or may not be uh, less troublesome to you than if you believe that a voice is really a voice and that every time you hear a particular voice that's somebody calling you or an ancestor or you must do something now. That's kind of where we were going with the insight, the the functional impact of insight idea. I mean, it's been shown before in studies, not in Africa, but elsewhere, that insight does have a relationship with functioning, and usually poor insight relates to poor functioning um, nearly all the time. Uh, So that's really what we were interested in. So that's that's our measure. um, uh, That was our measure of insight.
0: And what were your findings?
1: Uh, Well... Our findings were that um, functioning was was related to among these 60 pa- patients with schizophrenia. First of all, they were they were uh, a relatively, let's say, stable, I suppose, uh, group of, of patients. They were recruited to a study. It wasn't a first episode study or anything like that. Um, our finding uh, with relation to insight was that insight did have an independent relationship with functioning measured globally with global functioning. So that that was really it that the you know as expected the things that were related to, most closely to functioning were positive symptoms and negative symptoms and uh, also we found that insight was and specifically the treatment or the, sorry the recognition of symptoms so a person who was able to recognize a delusion or a hallucination as that as a symptom as something pathological and know it for what it was was functioning better than a person who in all other ways was equal, but did not have that, um, you know, symptom recognition. Who uh, scored poorly on symptom recognition? So that that was our, our our main finding. We also found that substance abuse was related with poor functioning and slightly, and we we weren't very surprised by that. But yeah, so so we it, in, with relation to insight, that was our main finding. That symptom recognition was the key thing. That it wasn't insight as a whole it wasn't recognition of illness which if anything i would sort of expect sometimes to that that would impair functioning because there can be an element of depression associated with recognizing yourself as being mentally ill and it wasn't treatment adherence that wasn't associated with functioning which is a little bit of a surprise it, t- recognition of symptoms and treatment adherence were very closely related that's another thing i suppose we found that People who recognised their symptoms were particularly likely to seek treatment. They were no more likely than anyone else to passively accept it, as in, here's your medication. Okay, I'll take my medication. There was no difference. But somebody who recognised symptoms was much more likely to go and seek treatment, and that makes logical sense. But again, it wasn't recognition of illness that was associated so closely with uh, treatment adherence. It was recognition of symptoms. I think that's a subtle but, uh, you know, maybe an important difference.
0: Now, when you refer to recognition of symptoms as being something pathological, I'm not quite sure how that fits in with the, the cultural explanation of symptoms that you were telling us about earlier, uh, of being bewitched or ancestors speaking to you. So are you saying that if a patient in Malawi went down the route of accepting the kind of folk uh, ex- account, they'd be scoring low on your insight scale then.
1: Yeah, I am saying that, yeah. And we, that that would be, that we, we would score, I mean, we did score it pretty much like you would score it here, you know, and it did depend on someone, at least, you know, recognising that there was something pathological or something not right going on. Whether or not they entirely agreed with us on our explanation about it. But that it wouldn't be accepted as a normal thing, just one of those things that happens. Yeah, so so somebody who accepted maybe a folk tradition and thought that they was this is the voice of an ancestor, that person would score uh that person would not score as having good insight into illness.
0: So sounds a little bit, some people would argue, being a bit harsh on the on the poor the poor person in Malawi who um tends to just take on a widely accepted cultural view and I think that's what's really interesting about your your position on this is that some people would argue it runs slightly against the classic textbook definition of what a delusion is if just to take an extreme example 12 million people in Malawi say that when you hear voices it's your ancestor speaking to you um, doesn't it doesn't it doesn't the definition the textbook definition of delusion say a belief that's out of keeping with the, with the cultural background of the client
1: it, it does oh this is such a tricky area. Um you you're you're dead right. And so we do you know, we often did and I really relied on my Malawian colleagues so much here. Um because this happened clinically as well as you can as you can probably imagine. Lots of times people would have particular experiences or particular possibly perceptual experiences and we would and I would have to rely on my Malawian colleagues to tell me whether they thought this was abnormal or not given the culture. And remember that, that you, you you said 12 million Malawians, but it's not 12 million Malawians. It's, it's 1 million Northern Malawians, 1 million Tambukas And just down the road, there's Tongas. And down the road from that, again, there's, there's the Chew and then there's the Yao. And there's all these different groups. And so we really needed, you know, I mean, we were practicing cultural psychiatry every day there, you know, because you needed to be aware of other people's beliefs and apart from languages. So, you know, our definition, I mean... uh. I, okay, I, I want to distinguish clinical from research. I mean, in, in terms of clinical, like when we saw somebody and there was a, there was some strange belief or there was a, possibly a perceptual disturbance that we weren't too sure about, a lot of our decision-making uh, around do we, do we address this clinically was how much distress is this causing this person, you know, um, we taking the line that if it's not causing any distress, well, look, we're not going to do anything about it. In terms of research um, and in terms of this paper, so we... We took it that if you believe, if you had the folk sort of belief about a, about a voice, then you 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 were not displaying recognition of symptoms. Yeah, uh, I I you know uh, we what can I say about that? We I I don't think that you have to make a judgment about whether you know folk beliefs are correct or not to to do that. We just we defined it as if you recognize that this was part was, was a symptom was something that needed to be addressed, then uh, then you did display good recognition of symptoms.
0: But what is, clear, what is really interesting and clear from the paper is the fact that if you, if you accepted what some people might describe as a kind of Western biomedical outlook, you seemed to do better. And that may be linked to the fact that you got this treatment that was available, the, the clopromazine. And if you didn't accept that, that outlook and you went down the traditional healer route, the problem was the traditional healers from your account didn't really seem to have much to offer. Um, and and it, that that was that to me is one of the key points a lot if people are going to accept the traditional um cultural outlook if it hasn 't got much to offer and you 're still going to end up being very unwell years and years later, then that doesn 't seem to be helpful
1: yeah you 're right and and uh, i mean and we remember we 're looking at a group of people with psychosis like we we would argue probably that there are a lot of mental illnesses that traditional healers probably can be very helpful with and we've we've tried to build over time relationships with traditional healers and get a decent referral service going between I, I say we again the, the staff in Mizuzu mostly who are there permanently have tried to do this and Avertakal and certainly tried to set this up early on that we would have a, a, an arrangement that if if a, symptoms of the kind of psychosis uh yeah, came to a traditional healer that they might refer them to us and that we would be happy to discharge other people to the care of traditional medicine you know people with less acute symptoms with less troublesome symptoms and 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 uh less potentially life-threatening sometimes um so y- you're right i mean i guess it does come down to somebody who after and who after 8.6 years you know this these were people with an illness duration of 8.6 years they weren't terribly symptomatic um but well, and their their functioning was all right. Um, it was uh, their functioning was not too bad. But you know these are people who have been around for quite a while. So you would expect that if traditional medicine was going to help, maybe it would have already helped.
0: What do you think are the implications um, of your study, and what are your own personal plans in terms of following up on this mm. research?
1: Well, there's there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, just in terms of explaining why why I think symptom recognition um, is related to functioning. There's, there's really two reasons. One of them is, if is you know, makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a neuropsychological reason, and this is something that's been suggested by Morgan and David in uh, in the, the Big Insight book, um, uh, Tony David's Big Insight book, and they looked at symptom relabeling, particularly being a, a, really a, neuro, a neurocognitive thing, and that if you have the cognitive capacity let's say, to uh, to recognize symptoms, then you probably have the cognitive capacity to, to function better. And that's one explanation. That's, you know, we didn't look directly at that, but that's certainly that could be a confounder for this finding. Um, so that, the other explanation I, that I wondered about and which really drove us to really look at this in the first place is that I think, um, that if someone uh, can can grasp that or not grasp but someone can recognize that a symptom is is pathological and is not actually really happening or a, a voice is not really you know it's not really your ancestor then. That might empower that person to sort of go on, and to 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 remove some of the affect and some of the strength and some of the sometimes omnipotence and omniscience of those of those voices and sometimes of those symptoms, and that might enable a person to function a little bit better. In terms of the implications, what how would we intervene based on this? Well. I think it does suggest maybe that a symptom-focused approach, I mean, there were two things uh, here that a symptom-focused approach might, might help. There were two things, and one was that it's if, if the symptom recognition rather than recognition of, rather than recognition of illness that, that improved functioning, or that was associated with improved functioning. And the other is that it was symptom recognition that was associated with, with better uh, treatment seeking. So those are two both pretty positive things, and that a symptom-focused psychoeducation might be appropriate. Now we're still in the process of working out if it is because the trial is still going on um and in terms of how we're following it up well we are carrying on with the trial um now uh, the trial is a carer education trial so one way of looking at this more directly would be to to have a trial of carer and patient or simply patient education that's definitely one thing that we should look at doing and that that should be looked at doing you know psychosocial research there's an enormous need for psychosocial research and and it's really suitable to places like mzuzu and to places where the psychopharmacological treatments are you know there's no point in having a trial of a new atypical in, in malawi but you can trial psychosocial research all day long and you'll you'll find things that are useful for real people on the ground in places like malawi and mzuzu
0: niall crumlish thank you very much indeed thank you